Well, let's all turn in our Bibles to Mark's Gospel, chapter 13. And if you would put your finger there and also turn over to Matthew 24. Let me uh, try and set the, uh, the stage here uh, as to where we are. It is Tuesday of Jesus' final week here on the earth in his earthly body. Sunday he has presented himself to Israel as their Messiah. We call it Palm Sunday. Uh, we believe it was on Sunday. We're not totally sure, but for the sake of argument, let's just say it was. Monday he comes in and cleanses the temple. Tuesday he comes back and is confronted by the scribes and Pharisees as to why he does these things, who gave the authority and so on to do these things. And really from that point on in Mark's Gospel, it's still Tuesday. We're still basically on Tuesday as the day is progressing and moving on. And Jesus is going to be leaving the temple area very soon. And he's going to be going back to the Mount of Olives. It seems like the last few days of his life on the earth, he spent all night in the, in the Garden of Gethsemane praying, preparing himself for his coming crucifixion and all. Quite a lot was pressing on him. He needed to spend time with his father. But to just set the context of Matthew 24 and Mark 13, you have to understand that as Jesus was confronted by the scribes and Pharisees, he puts them down. And then in chapter 23 of Matthew's Gospel, which Mark only gives us one verse of, but Matthew gives us the whole tirade, uh, if I could use that expression. I'm, I don't ex see Jesus here as losing it, but he definitely gave the Pharisees and scribes a blistering rebuke. Eight times he said to them, Woe unto you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites. And he outlined eight different areas of their hypocrisy. But I want to get to the last part of what he said here because it sets the stage for this this private discourse we call the Olivet Discourse which Matthew records in chapter 24 and Mark in chapter 13 Luke in chapter 21 he ends by saying in verse 37 of Matthew 23 O Jerusalem Jerusalem and the one who kills the prophets and stones those who are sent to her how often I wanted to gather your children together as a hen gathers her chicks under her wings, but you were not willing. See, your house is left to you desolate. For I say to you, you shall see me no more till you say, Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Now, that's extremely important because he said that, no doubt in the hearing of all those that were there, the scribes, the Pharisees, and his own disciples, and you have to understand that the Jewish mentality, the Jewish mindset, ever since these guys were little boys, they were taught that someday Messiah was going to come. And when he did, he was going to lead a revolt against, at that time, Rome, of course, because Rome was in power. Rome was in dominion over the Jews and over Israel. He was going to lead a revolt against Rome, throw off the yoke of Gentile Roman oppression. He was going to set up his kingdom on the earth where he would reign from Jerusalem visibly, bodily. All the Jews would be his prime ministers throughout the face of the earth. It would be a time of prosperity, a time of health, a time of plenty, a time when he would uh, right the wrongs that man had done to the earth. He would cause the lame to walk and the blind to see and the 
deaf to hear and so on. Uh, it was going to be a time of great joy. It was the Jewish hope. They were waiting for Messiah to come because once he came, he was going to make everything right. Well, before Jesus appeared in the scene, we have a character out in the wilderness crying out, you know, making the way straight for the Lord. And the scriptures had prophesied that before the Lord would come, that God was going to send Elijah. That's why when they went out to talk to John, this delegation of, of religious leaders from Jerusalem, because John was all the way out by the Jordan River down in the area, way out in the, in the desert area, they asked him, are you Elijah? Now he said no. He came in the spirit and power of Elijah, but he claimed that he wasn't Elijah, which means that John might have been a type of that prophecy in Malachi, but he wasn't the real fulfillment of it. But because this Elijah-like character preceded Jesus, who then came on the scene working miracles, healing the sick, delivering people from demons, so on and so forth, obviously the Jews believed, many of the Jews believed that he was the Messiah. Of course, we know he was. But his disciples began to follow him, thinking this is it. He's Messiah. And all along, as they followed him, their excitement got greater and greater because they realized that Messiah, at one point, was going to organize everybody and lead the revolt against Rome. And boy, that was going to be a, that's what they waited for, and to establish his kingdom. But towards the end of his ministry, he began to talk about going to the cross. He began to talk about him dying. He began to talk about uh, loving your enemies and things like that. Even before the end of his ministry, he talked about that kind of thing. That wasn't consistent with what they were taught Messiah was going to do and teach. I mean, he was doing the miracles of Messiah. He was, he was doing all the wonders that were prophesied, but the message wasn't right, at least that not the way they thought it should be. That's why if you remember when John was finally put into prison, remember he sent his disciples to Jesus and said, are you the Messiah or do we look for another? Why? Because Jesus was doing the works of the Messiah, but he wasn't acting like the Jewish concept. They didn't realize that Messiah was going to come twice. They didn't see that. You see, they didn't realize there were going to be two comings separated by almost 2,000 years of church history. The church was a mystery to the Old Testament Christians uh, or saints. They didn't see it. And the disciples basically were still of the Old Testament thinking, of course. And they didn't understand he was going to come twice. They only knew when he came, he was going to stick around and do all the things that scriptures prophesied he was going to do. But now he comes in. To Jerusalem on Palm Sunday, kingdom fever reaches its absolute zenith of fever pitch because, I mean, man, this is it. Here he comes. He's, gonna, he's coming in, and his disciples are all fired up. They're screaming, save now, save now, which doesn't mean save us from our sins. It means save us from the yoke of Rome. They're all hepped up. They want him to go for it now. This is the moment they've all been waiting for. But he starts to cry. How could our conqueror begin to cry? I mean, something is wrong here. And he began to lament because he knew that really his disciples were all charged up, but really the Jewish leadership had pretty much rejected him. They had not accepted him as Messiah. And so after the triumphal entry, then we read, of course, on Monday he cleansed the temple. Tuesday he gets into this argument with the scribes and Pharisees, and then he rebukes them. And then he says, And your house, O Israel, is going to be left to you desolate. What do you mean? empty, ruined. I mean, uh, the glory of God, which was to fill the house of Israel when Messiah came, is not going to happen. And you will see me no more until you say, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. 
Now he's talking about going away. Not only is he not talking about establishing the kingdom, but now he's talking about going away. How could Messiah go away? I mean, what does he mean, going away? You're not going to see me anymore. What does that mean? I mean, Messiah, when he can't, he comes, is supposed to uh, set up the kingdom. What is he talking about? They were totally confused. And as he's walking through the temple precincts towards the Mount of Olives, he says to them, or they point out to him, in Matthew 24, Then Jesus went out and departed from the temple, and his disciples came to him to show him the buildings of the temple. They were pointing to him this magnificent edifice, this glorious temple that Herod had remade into one of the truly greatest structures of the ancient world. Incredible. Some of those blocks of stone were 47 feet long by 12 feet wide, 12 feet high, over 100 tons, some of them. It was an incredible structure. Everyone in the ancient world marveled at it. Josephus wrote about it. Uh, everyone knew of the temple in Jerusalem. And his disciples began to point to, to the temple and, and remark about its magnificence. And then Jesus hits them again. If this, they weren't already reeling once. He hits them again in verse 2 and says, Do you not see all these things? Assuredly, I say to you, not one stone shall be left here upon another that shall not be thrown down. Not only is he talking about going away, but he's saying that the temple is going to be completely destroyed, completely wiped out. Not one stone is going to be left upon another. Now, that obviously left them dumbfounded. He walks out the eastern gate, down the Kidron Valley, up the other side of the Mount of Olives, and goes and sits down there by the, by the Garden of Gethsemane. And that becomes the basis now for them coming to him and asking him, three questions that becomes the outline basically of what he's about to say verse 3 now as he sat in the Mount of Olives the disciples came to him privately saying tell us when will these things be what things when is the temple going to be thrown down when are all these stones going to be knocked down right when are these things going to be and what will be the sign of your coming what do you mean by that well he just said I'm going away you'll see me no more until you say blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. All right, well, what are going to be, what are going to be the signs of your coming? You're going away. Uh, when are you going to come back? What, how will we know when you're ready to come back? What will be the signs of your coming? And of the end of the age. Very important question. You have to understand the Jewish mindset. What age? I mean, we see the word age. We can put all kinds of different time frames in there. What is the age that they were talking about? When will these things be? What will be the signs of your coming and the end of the age? What were they still thinking? Kingdom. The kingdom age followed the age of mankind, the age of Gentile dominion, the age of man governing himself on the earth. That's what they wanted to see an end to. The sinful, destructive age of man ruling over himself that led to so much disaster and pain and heartache and sorrow, when is all of this going to end, Lord, and the kingdom age going to begin? That was the question that they asked. And really, turning back to Mark 13, because Mark doesn't really get into that three-pronged question, Jesus is now going to begin to answer. He actually doesn't really answer the one part of it. When will these things be in the sense of when will the temple be thrown down he does at the end of the discourse 
give them a roundabout answer by saying of that day and hour knows no man. But he doesn't answer that question directly, but he does answer what will be the signs of your coming and the end of the age. Now, it's all dependent on a couple of very important things. First of all, when do we believe Jesus Christ is coming? Before, during, or after the millennial kingdom? This is an important point. There are those who teach that Jesus Christ never really said he was going to come literally, and that the church age is basically the spiritual kingdom of God on the earth, and this is called amillennialism. It just kind of spiritualizes all the scriptures that deal with his coming and setting up a kingdom on the earth. It's all fulfilled through the church, and really it's not literal. It's all kind of allegorical and spiritual. And obviously, if you know me in Calvary Chapel, we don't hold to that view. There are those that are post-millennialists. The word millennial means a thousand, of course. We're talking about the thousand-year kingdom, the kingdom age. There are those who are post-millennialists. They see it this way, that we're going to, as Christians, get involved in politics, elect Christians into office, and we're going to bring about the kingdom age. And after we get the whole world cleaned up and all ready to go and everything is clean and every righteousness reigns, then Messiah is going to come back and take over. Well, that's a little ridiculous. Uh, that view, however, was very popular at the beginning of this century when man seemed to be entering into a new, a new era of science and enlightenment and intelligence. And the common theological viewpoint was we're just getting better and better in every way, every day, better and better, and we're just going to keep getting better till the kingdom is established and Messiah will then come back. This was the thinking, of course. That was before two world wars, Korea, uh, Vietnam, and a lot of other horrible things. That view has kind of fallen into disrepute. I believe that the scriptures teach that Jesus Christ is coming back before the millennial kingdom. In fact, he's the one that establishes the millennial kingdom. He sets it up. We don't bring it into being. We can't bring it into being. Only he can establish his kingdom. So I want you to have that view in your mind as we go through this because we are premillennialists. We believe that before the millennial kingdom is established, Jesus is coming back again and he is going to be the one to establish it. All right. How does his remarks fit into this discourse? How, how does this all fit together? What is he talking about here? In hermeneutics, one of the basic principles of hermeneutics, hermeneutics is the, is the science of Bible interpretation. It's basic. As you read the scriptures, you have to have some kind of rules by which you interpret the scriptures that you read. Otherwise, and people do, they read the scriptures and they just read into it anything they want. They just, whatever they want, they just read into it. There's no rules. There's no kind of, you know, it's just they wing it. And a lot of people do that. You have to have some kind of rules, basically, as you study the scriptures to interpret them. One of the foundational principles in hermeneutics is context, context, context. You have to look at the context in which something was spoken and especially to whom was it spoken to? Let me say something without shaking you guys to, the, to your foundation here. Uh, when we talk about the Bible, if I was to ask you, is the Bible written to us here in this room as Christians? Every one of you would say, yeah, of course the Bible is written to me. Uh, the Bible is written to us. Technically, technically, and I don't want to get too 
technical, technically, that's not true. Technically, none of the Bible was written to us because we're basically reading other people's mail, in a sense. Uh, God had a lot to say to Israel under various covenants. Then when Jesus came, he had a lot to say to his disciples who became the church, who then Paul ministered to, writing various epistles, which are letters to various churches. Don't get me wrong, much of what, most of what the Bible writes to other Christians applies to all of us. But what I'm saying when I say this is, we have to understand that because we are reading other people's mail, we have to keep in the back of our mind who the people were that Paul and others were writing to, what was their context. Much of what Paul had to say to Corinth, Ephesus, uh, to uh, Galatia, and all these other churches in these areas is universal. It applies to Christians everywhere. We know that. So in that regard, yes, the whole Bible is written for us, you might say, even though really none of it was written to us. Because no, I don't find any epistle here addressed to the church at Elk Grove Village, Illinois. Okay, So technically, if you have that epistle, I'd like to see it afterwards. Uh, technically, none of the Bible is written to us, but it was all written for us, obviously. Um, but there are some parts in the Bible, obviously, that are also unique. Not universal, unique. Unique to the people that Paul was writing to or God was speaking to, unique to the church in whatever context or situation they found themselves in at that period of time. I don't have to belabor this point. If we went into the Old Testament and we pulled out where God said, and if you commit this sin, you have to bring one ram, two turtle doves, and a measure of fine flour and bring it to the high priest. Just because we read it in the Bible, does that mean every time I commit that sin, I've got to do that stuff? Of course not because we know that it was spoken to Israel under the Mosaic Covenant. Well, that's the point I'm trying to make here. As we read the Olivet Discourse, who was Jesus speaking to? You have to understand who Jesus is talking to if you're going to get the proper interpretation. And that really is some of the controversy. First of all, is Jesus talking to the church? Is he talking to the church? And therefore, talking to Christians that are in the church, when he talks about his coming, well then, is he talking about the rapture there? Or is he talking to believing Israel after the church is taken out of here, and thereby he's talking now to Jewish believers, which would also encompass Gentile believers, but since the scope is predominantly Jewish in these last seven years, even though Gentiles will be getting saved also. He focuses primarily on Israel. Is he talking about Jewish believers that will get saved during this final seven-year period? And then the prophecies where he talks about his coming and lighting up the sky from, uh, like lightning from east to west, flashes across a dark sky, uh, so the signs of my coming shall be. Is that then talking about the second coming as opposed to the rapture? This is created a lot of controversy in the church. Who is Jesus talking to? And what is he, what coming is he referring to? The rapture or his second coming? There are four predominant views with regard to the rapture. There are those that believe that the rapture is going to happen pre-trib, which means, and they define the tribulation period as being the whole seven years. So you have people that believe that before the last seven years begins, Jesus is going to take his church out of here 
okay? You have a position that's called the mid-trib position, which believes that right at the midpoint of the last seven years, Jesus is going to come for his church. You have what's called the post-trib position, and that's at the end of the seven years, when Jesus comes back to the earth at the second coming, he kind of gets his church, but then apparently comes right back down with them again, which is the view I least hold to. And then there's a new position that's come on the scene in the last, oh, eight years or so, seven, eight years, called the pre-wrath position, which believes sometime after the midpoint, but before the end of the last three and a half years, Jesus is going to come for his church. Uh, those are the four major positions. I throw these out to you for you to just go ahead and if you want to dig into this on your own, have at it. We want to look at the pre-trib position, probably the one you're most familiar with. And really, the pre-trib position believes that this last seven-year period, the first three and a half are called tribulation. The last three and a half years are called the Great Tribulation. So they distinguish between the two. But the church will not be here for any of this tribulation, all seven years, none of it. Jesus will come sometime before the seven years begins. And we know from Daniel 9 it begins technically, officially, with the Antichrist signing a peace treaty with Israel, Daniel 9.27. That will officially begin the last seven years upon the earth that we of human government as we know it. Uh, it's called uh, the 70th week of Daniel. That's because it comes out of Daniel chapter 9. Uh, in the Old Testament, it's called the time of Jacob's trouble. What's in view here is the tribulation of the nation of Israel. Time of Jacob's trouble, tribulation, basically the same thing. So they say, well, the first three hundred years is tribulation. Second half is the great tribulation, but the church won't see any tribulation because the Lord will catch his church out of here before the seven years begins. So we may not even see the Antichrist sign the peace treaty with Israel because when he does, that'll mark the beginning of it. We might even be out here before that even happens. Uh, the rapture, the pre-trib position believes the rapture is imminent. It can happen at any time. There is nothing that we can point to. There's no sign that we can look at to say, well, the rapture, this has to happen before the rapture can occur. It's imminent. It can come at any time. Verses that are pointed to are, no man knows the day or the hour. Behold, they come as a thief. And so from these verses, we infer that Jesus is saying that he is going to come at a time when nobody really knows. Nothing will signal it. It'll just happen imminently. Just at one point, we don't know the time. Uh, he even said, I don't even know the day or the hour, but only my Father in heaven, which, of course, we believe was a statement made in his humanity that when he took on the body of a man, he was certain limitations that he also took on. And uh, at that point, he didn't know the day or the hour that the rapture was going to occur. But now, of course, since he's been glorified, received up into heaven and all, we assume, of course, that he does know. And the pre-trib position believes then that Jesus was answering a Jewish question to a group of Jewish disciples. Yes, they were his followers, but they weren't thinking like Christians yet because in reality, they didn't even know that he was going to 
really rise from the dead yet. I mean, he told them he was going to. He told him he was going to be crucified. On the third day, he was going to rise from the dead. But see, that was not consistent at all with the Messiah setting up the millennial kingdom. So they dismissed all of that. That's why when it finally happened, they were shocked. They were taken by surprise. They couldn't reconcile that with their Jewish upbringing. So they were coming to him, asking him a very Jewish question. You're going away. How can you go away? How can you do that and set up the kingdom? So when are you coming back? And when are you going to set up? When is this age going to be over with, this age of Gentile dominion? When is the kingdom age going to be set up? You see, they were asking a very Jewish question from a Jewish mindset, not a Christian question. And so that's the pre-trib position that leads us into then this Find this discourse that Jesus gave. He is speaking to Israel, basically, believing Israel, Jews that will get saved during the seven-year period, but the church will be out of here, okay? So keep that in mind, all right? He said in verse 5, Jesus answered them and began to say, Take heed that no one deceives you. For many will come in my name, saying, I am he, and will deceive many. And when you hear of wars and rumors of wars, do not be troubled, for such things must happen, but the end is not yet. For nation will rise against nation, and kingdom against kingdom, and there will be earthquakes in various places, and there will be famines and troubles. These are the beginnings of sorrows. Uh, in the Greek, you could translate that. These are the beginning of birth pangs. Some call this first three and a half years the beginning of sorrows. It gives rise to the birth of the kingdom, but before that happens, like a woman has to go through labor pains before the birth of a child, and the labor pains become more and more frequent and intense, the closer she gets to the birth of that child, that's how it's going to be on the earth. These judgments and things, are these scenarios, these different events are going to happen. It's kind of slow and not very intensive, but as time goes on, faster and faster, rapid-wise, and in greater intensity, until, of course, the kingdom is born. He says, But watch out for yourselves, for they will deliver you up to councils, and you will be beaten in the synagogues, and you will be brought before rulers and kings for my sake, for a testimony to them. And the gospel must first be preached to all nations, but when they arrest you and deliver you up, do not worry beforehand or premeditate what you will speak, but whatever is given you in that hour, speak that, for it is not you who speak, but the Holy Spirit. Now brother will betray brother to death, and father his child, and children will rise up against parents and cause them to be put to death. And you will be hated by all men for my name's sake, but he who endures to the end shall be saved. Now there are some who read this and say, well, what you have here is Jesus talking to his disciples, and he's talking to them about things that were going to happen in their lifetime. When you see all these things come to pass, know this, that generation will not pass away before all these things are fulfilled. And so many commentators read this and say, well, this was all, it all happened in the first century. Before these disciples all died out, it, all the tribulation was Nero and, uh, and uh, these other various Caesars who persecuted the church. And they try to make it very localized first century fulfillment. Well, yes, the church went through persecution. Yes, Nero did in some ways was a type of the Antichrist, but it's obvious that the scope of what Jesus is talking about here goes far beyond the first century. When he talks about the gospel being preached to all nations, that didn't happen in the first century. It was preached to the Roman world, but definitely not to all nations. 
when he talks about cataclysmic judgments happening in the sky and in the in the world and all earthquakes in various places and all these are worldwide in scope so obvious the first century interpretation doesn't cut it okay it just doesn't uh, add up uh, there are those also who read these things and say well these signs are general and so they begin to get the graphs out and the charts and say, okay, it's an increase in famines, earthquakes, diseases. Let's chart the progress of earthquakes over the last hundred years and see how they've, and I've seen these guys with the flip charts and well, see how earthquakes have increased over the last hundred years. See how famine has increased. See how diseases have increased. All of these point to the fact that we are coming very close to Jesus' return. Even though famines, earthquakes, and diseases are on the rise, I do not believe that's what Jesus had in mind. I believe he had in mind a very specific set of signs for a very specific amount of time. I believe he was not talking about this century or the last 150 years we've seen these things on the rise. I believe he was talking about the last seven years of human history, the 70th week of Daniel. These signs would be in that time frame, and the generation that sees these things... He's not talking to them as that whatever generation is around to see these signs. That generation will not pass away before all these things are fulfilled and the kingdom is set up. So bear that in mind. And the reason I say that is because if you turn to Revelation chapter 6, of course the pre-trib position believes that starting in chapter 4 you have the rapture of the church and John is a representative of the church, and so John is caught up into heaven. And the language does sound like 1 Thessalonians 4. I heard um, a trumpet speaking with me, saying, come up here, and so forth, and I was ca caught up into heaven, and so on. And those in the pre-trib camp say, well, this is the rapture of the church. 4 and 5 deal with some of the things that John saw in heaven. And then chapter 6 begins, Jesus breaking open the seals on the scroll that was in the Father's right hand. And certain things begin to happen on the earth, and the church is already out of here, so it doesn't affect us at all. And if you look at, as Jesus begins to break the seals, the first seal he broke, verse 2, you saw a, uh, a white horse, and uh, he who sat on it had a bow, and a crown was given to him, and he went out conquering and to conquer. And some people say, well, that's Jesus Christ. No, I don't believe that's Jesus Christ. First of all, what's the, what's the weapon always found in Jesus' hand? A sword not a bow. And the word crown here is not diadem, the royal crown. It's Stephanos, which is the, a victor's wreath. So this is not a true king. It's not a kingly crown. As diadem, the Greek word for true crown of a king, Jesus, when he appears, is wearing a, a royal diadem. I believe this is the Antichrist. And if you turn back to Mark, you'll find that one of the first things that Jesus said was going to happen was, false Christ and false prophets are going to arise, okay? Well, the Antichrist is going to be the ultimate false Christ, but he's going to give rise to, I believe, many other false Christs because his doctrine, I believe, that he's going to propagate on the earth, I believe it's going to be a New Age doctrine. I believe it's going to embody the, the same lie that Satan told Eve in the Garden of Eden, that we are all gods, basically. We've got to come into that God consciousness and the Christ spirit can be is within all of us. And so he'll give rise to a lot of little false Christs running around, okay? But... It all starts with him. The second seal, you see a, a fiery red horse, and it was granted to the one who sat on it to take peace from the earth. And so we see war here. 
The third seal was broken, and you begin to see a black horse, and he had a pair of scales in his hand, and I heard a voice in the midst of the four living creatures saying, A quart of wheat for a denarius, and three quarts of barley for a denarius, and so on. This is talking about famine. And then uh, finally we see the, the next horse. Uh, we see uh, a pale horse. And the name of him who sat on it was Death and Hades and followed uh, with him and uh, power was given uh, to them over a fourth of the earth to kill with a sword, with hunger, with death, and with the beasts of the earth. And so I believe here what you have going on is Jesus is basically outlining this period of time. Uh, it will be characterized by false Christ, by war, by famines, which of course are the result of war. And of course whenever you have war, you have death, famine, disease. He's talking about this very specific period of time that will begin with basically the Antichrist uh, setting up his, uh, excuse me, uh, the Antichrist signing the peace treaty with Israel. And when that happens, it will be a time of pseudo peace and prosperity. Remember what Paul said in 1 Thessalonians? He said, when they say peace and safety, then sudden destruction will come upon them. How? Like labor pains upon a pregnant woman. Same imagery, same idea. When the Antichrist comes to power, he's going to be a man of peace. He's not going to be a man of war initially. He is not going to conquer in the sense he's going to conquer militarily. He is going to conquer with a philosophy, with a, an ideology. He is going to conquer because the world is looking for a leader and they appoint him. They're going to want him to take over. I just want you to see that what Jesus is talking about here is this first part of this seven-year period. And he's talking about how that, as we get past the, uh, the midpoint, it's going to get more and more difficult. Fathers are going to deliver up children, and uh, brothers will betray each other, and uh, uh, children will, will rise up against parents. It will be a very horrible time, a time when there will be people turning in there. If you can imagine, remember uh, Hitler and World War II and how uh, people were turning in their own relatives and uh, uh, it was a horrible time because that's the atmosphere Hitler fostered. Well, the Antichrist is going to be in the same vein, okay? And then Jesus, in verse 14, he focuses on one specific point. When you see the abomination of desolation spoken of by Daniel the prophet standing where it ought not in the Holy of Holies, then let those who are in Judea flee to the mountains. Let him who is on the housetop not go down into the house nor enter to take anything out of his house. And let him who is in the field not go back to get his garments. But woe to those who are pregnant and those with nursing babies in those days and pray that your flight may not be in winter. For in those days there will be tribulation such has not been from the beginning of creation which God created until this time, no, nor ever shall be. And the idea is this. When the Antichrist, after three and a half years, he will go into the rebuilt temple, he will stop the sacrifices, he will set up his image in the Holy of Holies and proclaim himself to be God and demand to be worshipped as God. At that point the Jews will realize that they made a horrible mistake. This man is not their Messiah. He will begin at that point to persecute the nation of Israel like never before, like never before in their history. In fact, the Bible says he will kill two-thirds of the Jewish people. Only one-third will survive. That's a lot more than Hitler ever massacred, okay? 
uh, it will be a time of great tribulation for the nation of Israel. The pre-trib position says, see, we're talking about Israel here, the nation uh, in Judea. If you're in Judea, don't go into the house again. If you're on the housetop, their housetops were patios. When you see this thing happen, of course, how is everyone going to see it? I would imagine it's going to be on television. If you see it happen, don't even waste a second to get belongings, but run. Run for your life. Because at that time, this man is going to stand up and begin to slaughter Jews by the thousands. Okay, it will be a time of great tribulation. But of course, we won't be here as the church, what the pre-tribusition believes. And unless those days, unless the Lord had shortened those days, no flesh would be saved but for the elect's sake. And the elect there is Israel, believing Israel, whom he chose. Uh, he will shorten those days. If anyone says to you, look, here is the Christ, or look, the, he is uh, there, do not believe it, for false Christ and false prophets will rise and show signs and wonders to deceive, if possible, even the elect. But take heed, see, I have told you all things beforehand. But in those days after the tribulation, the pre-trib position believes that now we're talking about the end of the whole seven years now. But in those days after the tribulation, the sun will be darkened, the moon will not give its light. The stars of heaven will fall. The powers in heaven will be shaken. And they will see the Son of Man coming in the clouds with great power and glory. And then he will send his angels to gather together his elect from the four winds from the farthest part of earth to the farthest part of heaven. And that is the second coming of Jesus Christ at the end of the seven years where Jesus comes and sends his angels to gather Believing Israel, believing Jews who have been scattered throughout the whole earth in hiding from the Antichrist, he comes and gathers them again to himself in preparation for him establishing the millennial kingdom. So this is the second coming that's in view here. Verse 28, Now learn this parable from a fig tree. When its branch has already become tender and puts forth its leaves, you know that summer is near. So you also, when you see these things happening, Know that it's near at the very doors. Assuredly, I say to you, this generation will by no means pass away till all these things take place. Heaven and earth will pass away, but my words will by no means pass away. And in the context that Jesus is talking here, the generation that sees these signs will not pass away before Messiah comes to establish his kingdom. It's pretty straightforward. Some people read it that he's talking about the generation that he was talking to, but it doesn't fit because he, Jesus didn't come back in the first century, right? They thought he was going to, but he never did. So he couldn't have been talking about that generation. He was talking about the generation that sees these signs. And he says, learn a parable from the fig tree. And a lot of commentators for years have said, well, the fig tree is Israel. In the Old Testament, a lot of passages liken Israel to the fig tree. So when the fig tree blossoms forth, well, when did that happen? May 14, 1948. When Israel became a nation, the fig tree blossomed forth again. That generation won't pass away before Messiah comes. Well, a generation in the Bible is 40 years. Add 40 years to 1948, gives you 1988, subtract 7 for the tribulation period. Oh, wait a minute now. He should have come back in 81. Something's wrong here. Yeah, something's wrong. It's a misinterpretation. Because in Luke's gospel, Jesus said, learn a, learn a, a parable of the fig tree or any other tree. When its branches begin to put forth their leaves, what do you know? Summer's near. That's all he was saying. Even so, when you begin to see all these signs beginning to, to break forth, you know my coming is near. That's all he's saying. Not trying to make the fig tree Israel or anything else. Just giving a simple illustration. 
But of that day and hour, what day and hour? The day and hour when he comes back again, they say, his second coming. But of that day and hour knows no one, neither the angels in heaven nor the Son, but only the Father. And take heed, watch and pray, for you do not know when the time is. It is like a man going to a far country who left his house and gave authority to his servants and to each his work and commanded the doorkeeper to watch. Watch therefore, for you do not know when the master of the house is coming. In the evening, at midnight, at the crowing of the rooster, or in the morning, lest coming suddenly he find you sleeping. And what I say to you, I say to all, watch. Now in Matthew's Gospel, chapter 24, Jesus adds something. He says in verse 36, But of that day and hour knows no one, not even the angels of heaven, or but my Father only. But as the days of Noah were, so also will the coming of, son of the Son of Man be. For as in the days before the flood they were eating and drinking, marrying and giving in marriage, until the day that Noah entered the ark, and did not know until the flood came and took them all away, so also will be the coming of the Son of Man. Then two men will be in the field, one will be taken, the other left. Two women will be grinding at the mill, one will be taken, the other left. Watch therefore, for you do not know what hour your Lord is coming. And the preposition says, look, just as it was in the days of Noah, that's the illustration Jesus gave. What was it like in the days of Noah? Well, first of all, it was horrible immorality, just like the days in which we're living. But again, I don't think that's what Jesus was talking about, even though, of course, there is a lot of immorality in the days in which we are living. I believe he was just simply, again, making a simple, giving a simple illustration. What was it like in the days of Noah? They were eating, drinking, marrying, giving in marriage. What does that simply mean? Business as usual, everyone was totally oblivious that God's judgment was about to fall, okay, until the day that Noah entered into the ark, and then they were all swept away, all taken away, right, by the flood. Even so, Jesus said, Two will be working in the field, one taken, one left. Two women grinding, uh, grinding wheat by the mill, one taken, one left. The preacher position believes that we don't have the rapture in view here. What we have there is Jesus coming again to the earth, bringing judgment. What happened in the day of Noah when the flood came? Who was taken off the earth and who was left? The unrighteous were swept away in judgment. And who was left on the earth? The righteous, who then entered into a new age of mankind. So even so, it's not the rapture in view here. It is Jesus coming in judgment to set up his kingdom. The unrighteous are swept away in judgment. The righteous remain on the earth to enter into the millennial kingdom. That's the pre-trip position, all right? Let's pray. Father, we just, uh, Lord, come to you and pray that you would, well, Lord, help us, strengthen us in our walk, Lead us, Lord, into the truth concerning these positions, Lord. Is the pre-trib position the right one, Lord, or the pre-wrath? And really, even if we don't come to a clear conclusion, should that affect the way we live for you right now? Lord, we pray that you would snatch your church away before the uh, Antichrist reveals himself, before the last seven years begins. We pray for that, Lord. We, we hope for that. But if your church has to go into, Lord, this final seven-year period, even to the point of uh, being exposed to great tribulation under the Antichrist, then we know that, Lord, by your grace and strength, we will be able to endure because you're the one who holds us up. 
And I just pray, Lord, that you would hold us up and prepare us for what might be. That we not be complacent and just assuming we're going to miss everything, but that possibly we are going to be experiencing quite a bit. Things that we never thought we were going to experience. Help us, Lord, to be strong. Help us to endure to the end of that age of Gentile and ungodly persecution against your saints and then pour your wrath out upon those who have set themselves against you and against your church. Strengthen us, Lord. We lift us up and ask these things in Jesus' name. Amen.